I'm Bob Lapine. Welcome to a special message from Truth For Life. I had the opportunity recently to sit down with Alistair Begg to talk with him about his book, The Christian Manifesto, Life-Changing Words from the Sermon on the Plain. Here's our conversation. I want to start by asking you about the title of the book, because I don't think of you as a provocateur, and yet here we are in the middle of conversations about things like Christian nationalism, and Alistair Begg writes a book called The Christian Manifesto. You want to explain yourself here? Yeah, uh, I think that um, the title we thought about for those very reasons and um, decided that the risk was worth the, uh, the potential benefit. Just in the sense that, you know, people are used to saying, setting out their declarations, uh, their statements regarding their company policy or their school agenda or whatever it might be. And um, so what we're really saying in this is that if you listen to the king uh, talk about his kingdom, uh, what are the principles and values that are there? And so Jesus, um, in a couple of places, we might say the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, um, actually sets out these principles. So that's what it's about. But it's not, I think, you know, the provocative aspect of it is hopefully will make people say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean a manifesto? And then mm-hmm. they'll read it rather than, oh, dear, I don't want to hear a manifesto. And then they'll neglect it. <laughs> Time will tell. You mentioned both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. There's overlap between what we see in Matthew's gospel and what's in Luke's gospel. This this is really the heart of what Jesus is telling his disciples that life is supposed to be all about, right? Yes, I think it's pretty clear that there are two separate occasions for sure, uh, but that the overlap between the material is exactly what we would expect when two of Jesus' followers were giving to their readers in their gospel the sort of highlights of the overarching teaching of the king. And uh, a bit like in newspaper articles, somebody highlights one piece, but when you read both of them, you realize that they are fitting in with one another. Yeah. And and as we think about this, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to the first sermon I ever preached when I was in my 20s, which was on the Beatitudes. And I, I have to tell you, I'm embarrassed to go back and listen to it because I was reading commentaries that were telling me that this was about the future, about the millennial kingdom, that these principles would be lived in the future, and maybe it wasn't for today. Um, I I don't think that's the case. I think we're supposed to read the Sermon on the Plain and apply it in our day, don't you think? Oh, I think for sure we can all be grateful for the fact that Martin Lloyd-Jones eventually, you know, gave to us uh, the Beatitudes and helped us uh, navigate our way through that. He did that a long time ago. And, of course, uh, the work that uh, John Stott did in um, the countercultural essence of Christian living, I found very helpful as a young man. And, um, yeah, no, I think it's it's vitally important. I think the other side, of course, is that the real danger in it is that we see this as just a sort of form of moralism, Mm. Uh, pull up your socks and try and be a decent person. If you'll do this, then maybe Jesus will let you into his kingdom. As opposed to what is actually being conveyed by Jesus, here are the evidences, here are the marks of kingdom living. Here is the, here is the impact that comes when an individual or a community 
um, bow their knee to me and trust entirely in who I am and what I've done, that the, that the outflow is from there. So that's working from in to out. And I think it's easy for any of us to, to read Luke chapter 6 and go, wait a second, I can't do this. I mean, love my enemies and and think different. This this is unnatural and and feels impossible. And I think that's part of the point, isn't it? That Jesus is trying to say, you can't do this. Well, yes, I, I think, well, I think, you know, it's interesting that you phrase it in that way because part of the problem is that uh, the sort of moral framework of Christianity with a big C is such that people do read this and say, oh, yes, I definitely can do this. <laughs> and uh, they might not make a very good job of it, but they're trying their best uh, to be these people. And and I think that when we read the, the material carefully, we realize exactly what you're saying, that Jesus is pointing out to us that this is an impossibility apart from the, the work of grace within our lives. Mm-hmm. And we also need to keep in mind, and and you point this out beautifully in the book, that this is not what we do to enter into the kingdom. This is what we do because we are citizens of the kingdom. Yes, and and so to read it, I must be honest, Bob. I you know I scan read this book in preparation for this conversation, and I I was immediately thinking of the passage where Paul says, "I do not." I don't I don't box in the air you know I don't I don't shadow box but I I beat my bo- I beat my body and to read this book um is to give yourself a pretty good punch on the nose because it, it immediately we want to jump to the conclusion that oh yes it's very clear that these are the evidences of uh, of real kingdom living and yet we're confronted by the fact that you know, if we look on the last week, we haven't just been exemplary um, people in relationship to these things. And so the wonderful thing about it is that it casts us back again and again on the Lord, but not to use that as an excuse for the um, potential disobedience of our own hearts. I, I find great comfort that Paul said, there are things I hate I end up doing. And, and there are ways I fall short. And so as I read the Sermon on the Plain, as I read your book, I think, well, it does pull me up short over and over again. But that's where I come back and re-believe the gospel and, and find my hope there. Absolutely. I think the thing that um, underpins this, and it's, it's a short book, I think, with a big punch, uh, more of a punch than I actually realized. And if at this point in in history at this point in our history in america with an increasingly divided country on all kinds of fronts if the people of god if we the people of god are prepared to actually take these things seriously and endeavor at great cost to ourselves and perhaps to our reputation and perhaps to our own agendas and strategies and everything else, be prepared to let the world in to see the embryonic nature of this kingdom. That it, it, the Part of the problem is that, and I say this in the book, I say, you know, this idea of, of a forgiving spirit or uh, loving your enemy or whatever it might be, uh, 
does the average person in our communities say, well, if I want to know about that, I should go to such and such a church? Or do university or college students say, oh, yeah, those are the people, those are the, the kingdom people, those are the Jesus people, that they understand that? And to our shame, I don't think that would necessarily be the immediate response. And so the opportunity that is before us now is for a phenomenal adventure to actually take this material. I mean, I just imagine to myself reading this out loud um, in in our congregation. I mean, I preached it many, many years ago, but um, I think it's even more daunting than, than it was back in the in the early in the late 90s i think about principles in the sermon on the plain like the teaching of jesus that we are to love our enemy and i think of today modern social media i wonder how many christians are taking a command to love your enemy and as they write out their their latest tweet or post their latest post on facebook are thinking well i need to be loving my enemy it it seems we've lost sight of some of these commands of jesus yeah, and they're so fundamental. That's the striking thing. I mean, this is not like a postgraduate course. This is the this is Christianity 101. I mean, this is this is foundational. Um, the the nature of forgiveness, the the amazing reality of mercy, and you know the trouble is that we read these parables. I read these parables, and you know I want to be the younger brother that comes back, you know, on my knees, and I look at it and I say, I. I horribly think I might be the elder brother here. Um, I, I, I want to be the guy who beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But I see myself more forcibly in these guys who said, well, I don't do this and I don't do that and I do this and I do that. And therefore, I've been able to scale myself. Mm-hmm. That's the challenge of it. That's the challenge that Jesus was laying down, of course. Forgiveness is one of the key themes in the Sermon on the Plain. And You and I both, as we talk to people in pastoral ministry, find a lot of people struggling with this issue of forgiveness, in in part, I think, because they don't rightly understand what it means to forgive someone. Forgiveness, though, is, is a command. It's not an option for a Christian, is it? Right. The, the, the way in which it is framed, of course, is that our our merciful response to people, reaction to people, is on account of the the groundswell reality of realizing how merciful God has been to us. Yeah. And you know, when we say the Lord's Prayer, you know, forgive, uh, forgiving our debtors, uh, as as forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts, as as we forgive our debtors. So hard to say that because you've got the trespasses or debtors or whatever. And anyway, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And, you know, it's only as I realize the immensity of God's forgiveness towards me that I realize that that I don't really have an option here um, in terms of forgiveness. It doesn't mean that for, to forgive a person doesn't mean that we condone what they've done or that we are just simply saying it doesn't matter. No, we don't condone it, and it does matter. If it didn't matter, there's no. if it wasn't wrong, there would be no need for forgiveness. But to forgive in that way is a supernatural thing. In the same way that, that at the other end of the, the other side of the coin, to love in the way that Jesus calls us to love is also a super, supernatural reality. 
as you're sitting with someone who is struggling with forgiveness, they've been profoundly hurt or uh, scarred by someone, and they say, I just can't forgive this person. What's your pastoral counsel to them in that moment? Well, funnily enough, I was with somebody just last week. They came through our building. They were traveling. And in casual conversation, um, we were just bantering things around. And then eventually the gentleman said to me, "Um, would it be okay if you and I just talked for a moment? And as we talked, he he told me that uh, he's been harboring all of his life a sense of anger towards one of his parents. Hmm. He had reached the point, he said, where he has now been able to look on that parent with a sense of compassion. But he said, and then he burst into tears. This is a man in his 60s. He said, but I just can't say I forgive you. Can you help me to do that? And so I said, well, I'll try. But that is the reality of it. And and. It's not immediately helpful, I think, to say to somebody, well, I'm not sure can't is right. I think perhaps won't is right, uh, because it is by an act of the will. Uh, Sometimes our hearts need to catch up with our heads, um, need to catch up with our words. And uh, so I encouraged him, and we prayed together. And uh, he said, this has been a a burden uh, shared and a burden halved. Hmm. Let me ask you about Jesus' teaching about money and possessions, which is a part of what's in the Sermon on the Plain, which again seems countercultural to the consumerism and the materialism that is so prevalent in our own culture. Yeah, it is such a challenge. I mean, that's that's what I say when I read through this again. You know, I don't I don't know about you, Bob, but I don't re-listen to my own sermons. <laughs> I mean, Spurgeon said, keep your old sermons to weep over, and I can understand that. But as I as I read this material again, I, I was struck by by the immensity of the challenge that the things that we lay store by um, are not the things that Jesus lays store by, and we have, if you like, been tempted, at least in Western civilization, to baptize into orthodoxy a sense of well-being, a sense of uh, position, and uh, and uh, a sense of being relatively settled. But as I, as I say in the book, you know, in terms of being rich, um, you know, most of us would fit in the scheme of the entire world in the 1% of those in the entire world. Therefore, it's not as if the I can sidestep it and say, well, I know a few people who are rich, they need to hear this. No, I, I need to hear this as well, because the, the temptation is to find our security in something other than God himself. And Jesus is saying there's no lasting joy that is found in that. And, of course, we know that, but then it's so easy to slip back into that and to be um, confronted by the challenge of, of, of the manifesto of the king. He says, no, you've got it upside down if you go there. My world turns it upside down. And that's the challenge. Is is there anything that helps you um, rethink your relationship with money and possessions? As you read the words of Jesus, how do you get free from the bondage that can come from materialism? Well, I think 
first of all, just being alerted to it is one thing and not trying to sidestep the warning bell saying, yeah, well, that's very good for someone, but it doesn't matter to me. First of all, being prepared to allow the thing to scan our own hearts. And then I think generosity with what we have is a tremendous help to recognizing that what we have was entrusted to us on loan, and it's not ours to keep in any case. And, you know, I say that as a Scot. You know, we're known along with the Dutch and a few others for a sense of frugality and for, you know, holding everything to ourselves. It's a real journey for me to discover that generosity with a provision that God has made is a is a wonderfully... Um, satisfying reality and also it, it, it when you do that when you when you disburse what you have then you have less left and therefore you are left to trust God I suppose more hmm. because you're saying I don't need this for my security I need you as my security Luke chapter 6 and the sermon on the plain does not feel to me like a passage you go to for comfort it feels like a passage you go to for to be challenged in your faith. And I think a lot of us open our Bibles looking for comfort rather than than exhortation or challenge. Is there comfort, do you think, found in reading through the Sermon on the Plain? Well, I, th- I think you're right, Bob. I mean, I think the initial impact of it is either to skip over it quickly or to run and hide <laughs> or to say, this must have meant something very significant in Jesus' day, but of course, you know, we're postmodern people and we view things differently, and which, of course, is then just to be those who read the Word but don't pay any attention to it at all. This, the joy that is found in it is the joy of bowing down to the King, is uh, acknowledging that His way is actually perfect, that His plans are are the perfect plans. And although they turn our lives upside down, uh, so that the idea of it's not it's not that we go out to say I've got to find as many people as possible that can hate me because then this would <laughs> then I would really be getting to grips with this so that we, it, some because some of us can make people dislike us you know with just the blink of an eye hmm. so it's important that 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 we set the, the 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 impact of individual statements that are often unearthed from the sermon within the context of the totality of what Jesus is saying, that that this is not everything about the Christian life. This is not everything about what it means to bow beneath the king. And so we need to make sure that in taking this particular address, we set it within the wider framework of the entirety of, Christ, the entirety of Christ's ministry. Well, and thinking again about the title, The Christian Manifesto, I'm thinking if if somehow our world was shaped by this teaching what a what a glorious reality that would be if we lived this way if we all lived this way that's what god intends for us yeah exactly i mean you and i both are children of the 60s one way or another and you know the uh, you know woodstock whatever it was and with all of its excesses and crazinesses aside, it was a genuine cry by that generation to discover 
what it meant to truly love. It was, as one journalist described it, the search for the nation's soul. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it came up short. Uh, the challenge of dealing with um, wars amongst the nations has been addressed by establishing the, night, the United Nations. But anybody with half a brain realizes that whatever is going on there in Brussels or whatever it might be, it can't settle the, the, the deep-seated animosities of people and the cries of the human heart. And so that is why the idea of, you know, one day this thing will be there in glorious technicolor. That's the picture in Revelation, that there will be this gathering of the people. But in the meantime, somehow or another, local churches have got to figure out a way to open up their hearts and open up their doors to let people come in and understand that in our vulnerabilities and in our brokenness, we are subjects of a king. He is a merciful king. He tells the truth. He doesn't dodge the issues. And he died in order that we might learn to die to ourselves as well. And it is in dying to ourselves. And instead of instead of making apologies for uh, uh, things that happened 250 years ago or 500 years ago, which is, you know, which is fairly, um, it's kind of like very trendy, you know, that I could apologize for things I never did to people that I never met. <laughs> Forget that for the moment. How about we just apologize for the things or ask for forgiveness for the things that we have done to the people that we have met? Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then, Perhaps people will say, well, wait a minute, I think we ought to give this a look. It's not about this. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. It's about he's a king. Apparently, he uh, has decided that his followers will live in a certain way by the enabling of the Spirit. These people over there are apparently trying it. Why don't we go check it out? You have in recent months been taking the Parkside Congregation through Romans chapter 1, and Psalm 139 and Jude, uh, which which all point to how out of sync our culture is with God's God's word, God's expectations. It feels like the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6 is pointing us back inward and saying, it's not just culture that is out of sync with God's demands, but our own lives are out of sync. And that's, again, why we need the gospel for forgiveness and for transformation. Yeah, that that's good, Bob. I wish I'd thought of that. I, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, you know, yeah. I, I think one of the salvations for me in in trying to tackle Jude and being tackled by Jude is the fact that he doesn't name anybody. He doesn't call anybody out. I mean, he gives us an identical picture of the characteristics of people that will that will cause trouble and and chaos if they're allowed to uh, embed themselves. So there is there is, despite his v- very forceful approach, it's if you like a, a an iron fist in a kid glove, and there is something in that I think that uh, we need to be prepared to identify what he's calling us to see, while at the same time recognizing that every finger that points out has a number that point back towards us. Mm-hmm. And the Sermon on the Plain, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, we all know, we all know the thing about the, 
the the plank and the twig, you know. The, mm-hmm. But but we're horrible at finding twigs in people's eyes, and you know I I think there's a sort of humorous treatment of that in the book where you know we have this idea that we have a a huge uh, beam that is projecting from our foreheads and we're trying to talk to somebody about something that they have in their eye and they say you know could you back up a little bit please and i say well why do i need to back up and say well you got that huge thing sticking out of your head oh no i don't no i don't they say yeah you do and and yet we're masters at that and churches are horrible for that yeah you know self righteousness uh, self pity self self and that's why we need to bow down before the king that's why he gives us the sermon and and i think it's not unimportant for us to be looking and saying this is what is wrong in our world and this is how the gospel would fix that but if we neglect this is what is wrong in my own heart and this is what needs to be addressed there then we we drift into the self-righteousness that you're talking about i want to ask you about the last chapter in the book because after all of the challenging teaching of the sermon on the plain you conclude the book by talking about the heart of the king. Why is that so important as we work our way through this material? Well, just in the same way that when we listen to somebody giving a talk, um, there is a person there. There is, there is a life there. There's a, the, we, we hear these words and we, we respond to them not simply because we can understand the syntax, but because we sense something of the person, at least at the at best. And so when we read the words of Jesus, um, we need to realize that it is these are Jesus' words. Uh, he is the, the Christ who has spoken clearly. Uh, he is the, the Christ who has compassion on people. Um, he's the Christ who gives up himself in order that uh, others might find in him the, the longings of their hearts. And that's why we finish in the way that we do, so that we, we don't get the creed, as it were, uh, distanced from the compassionate heart of Christ himself. I think every pastor who preaches, every author who writes a book like this comes away thinking, I hope my readers or my listeners will think differently as a result of their interaction with this, will will feel differently and will act differently. As you think about this book and your prayer for this book, what do you hope will be different? How do you hope people will be different after they have read uh, this book and they've meditated on this sermon? Well, first of all, you know, I hope that I will be different. Um, The old song that we never sing, you know, it's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I mean, that is is foundationally the case. Um, And so I hope that that would be multiplied. I hope that that, um, our church family, those who choose to uh, read this book, that we that it might have an impact among us because learning to say I'm sorry, learning to say please forgive me, learning to say you know I'm not at my best at the moment. Can you come alongside me? Learning to say yes, I know that these people believe a very different agenda, that their lifestyle is 
orientated in another direction and learning to say, but I have no basis upon which I could argue that I myself would not be where they are were it not for the amazing grace of God, were it not for his compassion towards me. And in very specific areas, this comes across. I mean, you and I know that we field questions all the time that go along the lines of, uh, my grandson is about to be married to a transgender person, and I don't know what to do about this, and I'm calling to ask you to tell me what to do, which is a huge responsibility. And in a conversation like that just a few days ago, um, and uh, people may not like this answer, but I I asked the grandmother, does your grandson understand your uh, belief in Jesus? Yes. Does your grandson understand that your belief in Jesus makes it such that you can't countenance uh, in any affirming way the choices that he has made in life? Yes. I said, well, then, okay, as long as he knows that, then I suggest that you do go to the ceremony, mm-hmm. and I suggest that you buy them a gift. Oh, she said, what? She was caught off guard. I said, well, here's the thing. You're not going to, your your love for them may catch them off guard, but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they said these people are what I always thought, judgmental, critical, unprepared Mm -hmm. to countenance anything. And it is a fancy, it is a fine line, isn't it? It really is. And people need to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. But I think we're going to take that risk. We're going to have to take that risk a lot more if we want to build bridges into the hearts and lives of those who don't understand Jesus and, and don't understand that he is a king. John tells us he was full of grace and truth, and we have to figure out how we can be full of grace and truth at the same time, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, full of, our words should be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Yes. So easy to get that upside down. And when a pastor does, then that, that will take on an, uh, a role in a congregation as well and flavor it. And so, you know, let not many of you become teachers. Hmm. Well, it's been a treat for us to hear Alistair Begg talk about his new book, The Christian Manifesto. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did, and I hope it challenged you to take up Jesus' call to live a radical, countercultural life for his glory. If you'd like to find out more about the book, The Christian Manifesto, visit truthforlife.org slash store. There you're able to preview the book and to get your copy. Our team at Truth For Life has also produced a companion study guide that's great for both individual readers and small groups. It's a great pairing with the book, so you can take notes chapter by chapter, apply what you've learned, and then discuss it with others. Once again, find the study guide as well as the book at truthforlife.org slash store. I'm Bob Lapine. Thanks again for joining us for this special interview. The Bible teaching of Alistair Begg is furnished by Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.